Greetings, this is Dr. Chris Bergwald, Director of Evangelization and Catechesis with the Catholic Diocese of Sioux Falls, and I'm happy to introduce the following presentation from a Faith for Life seminar held in Sioux Falls on November 15, 2008, on the topic of the genius of woman, being a Catholic woman in the 21st century. The presenter is Dr. Elizabeth Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is the Dean of Students and a teacher at Trinity Academy, a Catholic school near Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Dr. Mitchell did her doctoral work at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome, where she was the first layperson to receive the doctorate in communications from that institution. Dr. Mitchell has also written studies for the National Catholic Women's Organization in Dow, specifically on the topic of St. Edith Stein and her work. This is the second of three presentations which Dr. Mitchell gave. I hope you enjoy this presentation, and may God bless you. If you'd like to read Stein directly, I recommend Life in a Jewish Family. I also recommend, I like to read someone's letters. You kind of get to see what they were saying when they didn't think anyone was listening except the person they were writing to. And there is a book called Self-Portrait in Letters. And one of the reasons it's so interesting is because it's letters Stein wrote when she was in college all the way through the last letter she wrote from the train, she they stopped at Wester, Westerbork, which was a holding camp on the way to Auschwitz, and she sent a letter back to her community asking for the new um, book of the, for the Liturgy of the Hours. And didn't need a toothbrush, didn't need anything, she asked for that. So if, you, if you're going to walk the walk with Stein, reading her letters to all different people, at all different stages of her life, it's a great book. A lot of spiritual nuggets in there. She doesn't have a spiritual autobiography like Therese of Lisieux's so, Story of a Soul, etc. But um, Science of the Cross is quite good. And then her essays on woman are hefty, but great. So those are the different books that I recommend. Um, there is a good biography by... Frida Mary Oben, O-B-E-N, called The Life and Thought of Edith Stein. But I think sometimes it's more fulfilling to read the first-hand writings of the saint, if you possibly can. So a couple of those books I recommend. Um, if I can ask Chris to hand this out. Stein had a catchphrase for the concept of woman in her time, and it was the, the ethos of the professional woman. She taught a lot about human formation and the role of woman. And she based her outlook on woman on what she called feminine singularity, what it is that makes women distinctive. And she was fighting one branch of the feminist movement at her time that was fighting to say there is no difference between men and women. We're equal and we're in fact the same. And that's why we should have equal rights, the right to vote, same jobs open to us, because we're no different than men. And Stein adamantly disagreed. And she said, no, women are distinctly different from men. No less valuable, but distinctly different. And it's in that distinctiveness or feminine singularity that their gifts lie. And that any time we are acting and working in union with what makes us distinctively female, we're going to have a more powerful impact. It doesn't ever limit where you can go, but it 
it assists how you can do things. I'm going to take um, most of what I tell you today from this book, Essays on Women, and she has a, a specific talk she gave in here. She went to Salzburg in 1930, and she gave a lecture to a convention of Catholic academics. And she asked, is there a natural feminine vocation of woman? Are there feminine vocations other than the natural one? And what is the source of their strength? So are there vocations women are naturally cut out to do? Are there vocations women can do other than what they're naturally cut out to do? And what is the source of the strength that they draw from as they do these vocations? And the answer she gives us is this. Every profession in which a woman's soul comes into its own and which can be formed by a woman's soul is an authentic woman's profession. So two things have to happen to be an authentic woman's profession. Every profession in which a woman's soul comes into its own. So in some way, your soul is being fulfilled, nurtured, coming into its own, reaching its fulfillment, and which can be formed by a woman's soul. Your distinctive femininity can be forming the area in which you're working is an authentic woman's profession. If either of those are lacking, then it's not an authentic profession. She will take us many places, and she'll begin with the fact that if women are singular, then how are they different from men? And she talks about, yes, question. Sorry, could you say that one more time? Yeah, that quote about women's professions? Yeah. yeah, it's so good. Every profession in which a woman's soul comes into its own and which can be formed by a woman's soul is an authentic woman's profession. And that's kind of an exciting definition because that's really wide open. Keep in mind that her mother worked in a lumberyard. Her sister became a medical doctor, one of the first females to go through university. Stein became an international lecturer. So she knows what she's talking about from first-hand experience. She says that while the woman shares a basic human nature with man, we are human, men are human, women are human, we have a basic human nature, women have distinctive faculties or a distinctive outlook, a distinctive perspective from which they live out their humanity. And she says it's this, women seek to embrace the personal, Women are people persons. Women see things in terms of persons. And I'll explain what I mean. Men, in contrast, have more objective minds. They tend to the factual more than the subjective. And I'll read what she has to say about this. She's not calling one better than the other. She's just calling this different, different outlooks. She says, man appears more objective, man, men, more objective. It is natural for him to dedicate his faculties to a discipline, be it mathematics, 
or technology, a trade, or business management, and thereby to subject himself to the precepts of this discipline. Woman's attitude is personal, and this has several meanings. In one instance, she is happily involved with her total being in what she does. Then, she has a particular interest for the living, concrete person, and indeed as much for her own personal life and personal affairs as those of other persons. Both of these characteristic impulses, as they emerge from nature, do not demonstrate yet any initial value. They have both positives and negatives. Now, we'll chuckle a little bit when we talk about the positives and negatives, particularly of the women's interest in people. Um, but let's take a very, very basic example to explain the person outlook versus the objective outlook. I was walking once through a field in Oxford, England, and my family goes on a walk when we go to England. Our dad's from England, and we walk through this field. And often the family kind of trails, so there's some at the front and some five, ten minutes behind. And I was walking with my sister, and a lady went by on a bicycle. And my brother, John Paul, was five, ten minutes behind me, and something had struck us about the woman. And when we all got to the end of the path, we said, did you see the lady on the bike? And he said, well, I don't know, there were a lot of people on bikes. And we said, well, it was the, it was the lady with gray hair and the shawl. And he said, was it a 10-speed bike? <laughs> and I said, I have no idea. <laughs> so when a lady drives by on a bike, the man sees the bike. And the gears, and the mechanics, and the objective object. And the woman sees the color of the scarf and the way she, the lady did her hair and how old she was and if she looked happy and if there was a puppy in the bag. <laughs> and so I said, oh my goodness, that's what Edith Stein is talking about. And there's nothing wrong with either way of seeing the world, but we need to know that we see the world differently. Everyone has a little box here. And this box gives the differentiation of masculine and feminine characteristics. And Stein will give the positives of the feminine nature and the positives of the masculine nature. And then she'll warn us about ways in which each nature can become hyper or more sensitive or more overly balanced towards one outlook than the other and where we should worry um, about some weaknesses. So, a positive in the feminine. It's in the feminine nature to have a tendency towards union, to want unity, harmony. The negative of that, the hyper side of that, would be an urge to lose yourself in another human being, to maybe get your identity from another human being, whether that's from your spouse, whether that's from your children, whether that's from your friends. The positive in the masculine is a tendency towards detachment. Even if it's cold outside, Pa Ingalls in Little House on the Prairie puts on his boots and goes out and chops the wood. He's detached as to the exterior conditions. The negative, or the overly hyper side of that, Stein points out to a brutal despotism over others, and especially women. A detachment to feelings at times, to be too detached 
and just drive to the point at hand instead of stopping to see the person in front of you. The next characteristic for the feminines that's positive is a dedication towards developing others to completion. Women are nurturers. Developing others to completion means we like to nurture. The hyper side of that is too much curiosity about other people. So I not only nurture my own children, but I have great ideas on how you could nurture your children better. Um, I not only know what dress my daughter has for the dance, but I'd like to know what dresses all of your daughters have for the dance and where you bought it and how much it costs to make sure that I've nurtured my daughter at a level with the way you've nurtured your daughter. In the masculine, on this um, relationship, men are very dedicated to a discipline. They can have a task, and as long as they know what the task is, they can be very dedicated to it and complete it. And man, who has the, the, the role throughout time of working at a discipline, that's a very positive attribute. The negative on that can be an enslavement to work a losing oneself in work, in always staying late at the office, in never being able to know when enough is enough in terms of work and becoming in some way too dedicated and not being able to shut off and say, done enough, time to go home, I bet dinner's ready, etc. The feminine in the positive has an orientation towards the concrete whole person. So an orientation towards people and helping them to become all that they can be. The negative is placing too much emphasis on myself or my own family, not necessarily being other-centered enough. That my main role as a wife and mother may be my family, but then taking that role to, to too much of an extreme and, and having too much of an emphasis on myself or my own family. Men are able to orientate themselves towards a specialization. They're able to become, at a task, extremely specialized in their work. The negative would be an atrophy of one's humanity. And this, we need to talk a little bit, too, about um, the techno side of things. You can sometimes see um, men become engulfed in the computer world and spending too much time to an atrophy of their humanity towards that specialization towards um, knowing and finding out everything. And the computer world is just one example, um, but you could, you could use it. Women have, on a positive side, a special capacity for empathy. It's a gift that we have that's been given to us by God, to empathize, to understand other people. It's different from sympathizing. Um, if I'm up here with Jen and Jen comes up on crutches and she has a broken leg, I can say, I sympathize. I can see that if that happened to me, that'd be a real pain. To empathize is to say, I once broke my leg, and I know that one of the hardest things for you this morning was that you couldn't wear the shoes you wanted to wear because you have a cast on. So to empathize is not to say how I would feel in that situation, but to understand how the other person feels. The negative side of that for females is an inability to accept criticism without seeing it as an attack so that while we're able to understand another person's point of view, because we're so good at that, we don't like people to try and see things from our point of view. We say, no, 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 that's a criticism of me. You're attacking me when someone might simply be trying to offer you constructive advice. 
For the men, they have a special capacity for objectivity. The bike went by and it was at 10 speed. John Paul Mitchell didn't give any thought to that. That's how he saw the bike. It's his special capacity. It's the way he sees the world in terms of objects. You ever give a man directions? They want to know what streets to take and when to turn right and left. If a woman gives you directions, she tells you when you pass the certain restaurant with the blue umbrellas outside. And then she tells you that there's you know, a gas station where they have really great coffee. And that's the difference the objective versus the personalistic. The, the danger there is a degeneracy of too much abstraction. So to be too objective, and a lot of times a female will say, well, don't you want to know how I'm a feeling about that? Well, no, the car broke down and we'll get it fixed. I know, but I'm feeling hurt and worried right now because we're on the side of the road and it's cold out and I'm worried. But the abstraction would be not to, not to think that there is an emotional side to something, just the objective case of calling the tow truck and getting things taken care of. So Stein likes to look at how we see the world and how that's a positive, how you see the world is a positive, but it can become overemphasized and become a negative. The main natural gifts that Stein attributes to women are those that make us the most distinctive in our femininity and its maternal gifts directly related to the personal aspect of our nature. We as women have a yearning to cherish, to guard, to protect, to nourish, and to advance growth. To cherish, to guard, to protect, to nourish, and to advance growth. We really seek hopefully, to become complete human beings ourselves, that oftentimes we're taking time out to make sure um, that we have, and hopefully, and, and oftentimes you have to stop and tell yourself to do this, um, to advance our own growth, to nourish ourselves, to make sure we're getting um, complete fulfillment in ourselves. But we like to lead other people to that. Children, our children, a husband, those we come in contact with. And there are going to be some, some very positives some very fine positives with this in terms of the professional world. Very quick um, last look at the subjective versus the objective. Stein says that the woman's emphasis on the personal can be exaggeratedly unwholesome. For example, a too eager interest in the personal can lead to the feminine failing of gossip which is an emphasis on the subjective. What did she do? What did she say? Why did she think that? And also the female phenomenon that in modern terms is called the bad hair day. Now, what is a bad hair day? Well, a bad hair day means that I have a temporary negative self-image. We call it a bad hair day, whatever it is. I don't like my outfit. My hair didn't work out the way I wanted. It's raining outside, and I don't like what happens to my hair when it rains outside. Therefore, I'm no longer able to function effectively. <laughs> and that's that. I'm having a bad hair day. I don't like the weather outside. These are subjective things, but I then decide I am no longer able to function effectively. Stein says that the best way to counter this in ourselves is work, objective work. If you think about teenage girls, my sister is a great example. My sister Anne will tell the story that she was sent once to work at Baskin Robbins, which is an ice cream store that I'm sure you all know about. And whether she liked it or not, she had to show up on time, she had to clean the counter, she had to do the work 
assigned to her, and then she could go home. It had nothing to do with whether she liked the uniform, which was brown with pink dots on it, whether or not she liked the people she worked with, or if she didn't like to, to always have ice cream available to her. So that work is the great objectifier, and for women it's very important to be put into a situation where objective parameters demand us to respond regardless of how we're feeling, what we think, if we like the people who work there. Um, and she, Stein recommends this from a young age on, for girls to be given work that gives objective standards and they need to respond to them, which I think is an interesting thing to point out because women tend to buck at times the objective in favor of the subjective. The example which Stein gives to us of the purely developed feminine ethos, the example par excellence, the lady who is doing it, walking the walk and talking the talk, is the Blessed Virgin Mary. She says, the image of the mother of God demonstrates the basic spiritual attitude which corresponds to woman's natural vocation. She looks at the Blessed Mother as a wife and mother, as a professional. She's going to use the wedding feast at Cana as the CEO moment of the Blessed Mother. And the religious life, because the Blessed Mother had a contemplative side. Let's start by looking at the role of wife and mother. Mary's relation to her husband, Joseph is one of obedience, trust, and participation in his life as he furthers his objective tasks and personality development. So if you think of the carpenter shop, that Mary is an integral aspect of that functioning um, as she participates in his life and furthers his objective tasks. To the child, Jesus, she gives true care, encouragement, and formation of his God-given talents. She offers both selfless surrender and a quiet withdrawal when unneeded. All is based on the concept of marriage and motherhood as a vocation from God. It is carried out for God's sake and under his guidance. Now Mary has a completely independent identity. She's quite a woman. But she's also an integral hidden part and servant in the home. And all of the things that she did that never made it into the Bible are one of the reasons why the hidden years of Nazareth must have been gloriously wonderful years. So Stein says, mothers should know to what purpose they rear their children and have an open vision of what they can become, their developmental possibilities, that to form your child in freedom, they become a whole person, you encourage their abilities, and then you see um, what they're able to become, really giving them over to God's hands when the time comes. Stein says such mothers are probably the most important agents for the life of the nation, people who are forming whole children. As a spouse, she says this is true at home. The wife's concern is that the personhood of the husband is nurtured at home when he comes home from his professional activity so that he does not look for compensation in shallow or dangerous diversions to nurture the humanity of a husband returning from work. A fine home creates an atmosphere in which the soul can freely breathe. And then the values which she longs for are materialized naturally. Stein says one of the two of the best things in the home are tact and delicacy in decisions. Particularly, she says, there are women who have a gift of walking the difficult and thorny way with a husband 
Particularly, she talks about the woman who wins a husband back to the faith when he is indifferent or rejects it. And she says it's not talk or scolding that does this, but a quiet example in prayer wins every time. And she says that's the mystery of the life of Christ. A glance toward the mother of God then takes us toward the women's role in the professional life. Stein says, Mary at the wedding of Cana, in her quiet observing look, surveys everything, looks around, she's a guest at the party, and discovers what is lacking. Before anything is noticed, even before embarrassment sets in, she has procured already the remedy. She finds ways and means. She gives necessary directives, doing all quietly. She draws no attention to herself. Let her be the prototype of woman in the professional life. So anticipating needs in your environment is a gift of women. Uh, I think women have a gift of anticipating when the tank in the car needs to be filled. Uh, my sister tells a story of going on a road trip where the, with two friends where the wife kept saying, I think we need to fill up, I think we need to fill up. And the husband keeps saying, we don't need to fill up, we don't need to fill up. And of course the car ran out of gas. But anticipating needs, finding solutions. Women are great problem solvers, great problem solvers. Mary was the problem solver at the wedding feast of Cana. Her divine son had the miraculous ability to solve the problem, but Mary pointed out the problem. Tactfully, they have no more wine. She doesn't, she doesn't say anything more than that. And efficiently, no one noticed that the wine was out, or almost out, and discreetly. And we were talking at lunch, I think that Stein, or Jen, talked about boldness, feminine boldness, that there are two sides. It's very bold. The Blessed Mother is extremely bold at the wedding feast of Cana. They have no more wine. I'm not in charge. It's not my child getting married, but we need to do something. And also being discreet and quiet. And Stein in her own life, very, um, very bold in the topic she discussed, they say that she was always, however, very unassuming in her own manner. She never really put herself out in her personality. She didn't have an overpowering personality. But when it counted, Stein was very bold, even verbally. Um, she was brought into the Gestapo office to verify her papers uh, when she was a Carmelite nun, and she walked into the office and said, Praise be Jesus Christ. And the Gestapo looked at her. She didn't need to do that. They were just dumbfounded. And when she was asked who she was on the way to Auschwitz by the Gestapo, she said, I am a Catholic. And she was very bold in that way. Edith Stein says, if you think about Mary, she had an administrative role in the early Christian community. She must have. Guiding the apostles. She was no doubt turned to, in many instances, to settle disputes. Mary, what do you think? To cast a deciding vote. Mary, who should go where? or to prayerfully consider what action should be taken. As a leader and administrator, her example is quite amazing. And then I'll just touch on actual professional activities, Stein says, um, really can have an impact by the feminine singularity. Teaching is a big one. She calls it a truly feminine vocation. Because the bond between mother and child is not established between teacher and student, she says that that's the responsibility of the teacher to show consistent love to each student to gain their trust, especially the difficult children who need the most guidance. She really puts responsibility on the teaching education in the, this age with the breakdown of the family life. 
placing upon the teacher the role of forming and guiding, a critical role that some students may not be getting at home. She said the teacher must be firm and formed. In other words, know what you think and stick to it and be formed. Have your information to back up your topic. If, if a teacher is well formed, they're extremely interesting and there aren't discipline problems in the classroom. If discipline problems arrive, arise, students need to know that you mean it. Firm and formed. Stein then looks at some professions with her, which are traditionally masculine. She talks about the medical and social professions. Now her sister became a doctor and she says, what better place for the role of empathy? the sympathetic ability to diagnose, for example, symptoms based on an ability to understand the personal aspects of the case in front of you. So not just the objective symptoms, but to talk to the person, understand what they've been feeling, what they've been thinking, that a woman in that medical profession can really glean a lot. She says office workers, the feminine nurturing skill often comes up when they can affirm the working environment. It's not just about output, it's about getting there. So she says the woman walks into an office and says, no, 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 no. The desk should be by the window. The lamp should be on the side of the room. We need a painting here. And suddenly the office is humming and everyone feels better and no one knows why. And it wasn't just about output, it was about the feminine gift of nurturing the environment. She talks about factory work, business work, legislative and political work. Legislative and political work, she talks particularly about diplomacy. She says women are great diplomats. And she says the reason is they see the person behind the issue. So that they have something they bring to the table, particularly in politics and diplomacy, because of their focus on the person. So we have a healthcare crisis, the woman sees the person behind the crisis, etc. She says often the feminine nature becomes a counterbalance to a world that just is in danger of becoming mechanized, going through the motions. So she really talks about lots of places where women can have an impact. The last area is scholarship that she touches on. She doesn't exclude anything, but she touches again on scholarship. The arts, history, and literature all are based on living human beings. History is about people who used to live a long time ago. Literature is about the actions of characters and the way human nature works around us. And she says translating and editing are great, great jobs where the feminine touch is better or very, very significant if we look at it because um, I did a lot of translating so I thought of this. When I lived in Rome, I worked as a translator for the Vatican Press Office. And I thought, well, Stein says I'm supposed to be good at this, so why? You have to understand what the person who wrote the original document was saying. John Paul II wrote everything he wrote in Polish. Then it was translated into Italian. And then I would often have to translate it into English. Now, I can't read Polish. But what you try and do is not just translate the words on the page, but understand the mind of John Paul II. And what word did he want? What English word is the equivalent of what he meant there? And that's a gift where empathy comes in play, editing the same Editing is the same. The final vocation, where Mary is the ultimate example, is the consecrated religious life. And Stein says that tendency towards union, that first positive characteristic of the feminine nature that we talked about, 
Is the motive principle and end of religious life to make an absolute gift of self to God in a self-forgetting life? To end one's own life in order to make room for God's life? The more perfectly this is realized, the more richly will God's life fill the soul. She says, and she zeroes in on this, the deepest longing of woman's heart is to give herself lovingly, to belong to another, and to possess that other completely. This longing is revealed in her outlook that's specifically feminine. Only God, ultimately, she says, can welcome a person's total surrender in such a way that one does not lose one's soul in the process, but wins it. And only God can bestow himself on a person so that he fulfills this being completely and loses nothing of himself in doing so. She says, thus the divine life entering the being surrendered to God is love, ready to serve, compassionate, awaken, and foster life. In all of these places then, women in their distinctive maternal nature can be the handmaid of the Lord. They can cultivate and nurture where they are. They can see the person where they are, and they can bring all of that to a more full living. But what is the source of strength for this work? As women go out into all these places, the home, the office, the, the classroom, where they are, what's their source of strength? And she says, it's prayer. It's prayer and nothing else. And I'm going to read you what she calls practical prayer advice for busy Catholic professionals. Stein was a busy, busy, busy Catholic professional. They say they don't know how she found time for everything she did. And often, right before Christmas, there would be presents for people where she was living. And it was a distinctive touch of Stein that she found time for everything and everyone. So she says this is how she did it. The duties and cares of the day, of the day ahead, crowd about us when we awake in the morning. If they have not already dispelled our night's rest. So she knows women wake up and they think of the day everything they have to do. And sometimes we actually lose sleep because we're already thinking about the day that's going to come. Now arises the uneasy question. How can all this be accommodated in one day? When will I do this? When that? How shall I start on this and that? Thus agitated, we, women, would like to run around and rush forth. We must then take the reins in hand and say, take it easy. Not any of this may touch me now. My first morning's hour belongs to the Lord. I will tackle the day's work which he charges me with, and he will give me the power to accomplish it. So I will go to the altar of God. I may participate in that, purifying myself and be made happy, and lay myself with all my doings and troubles, along with the sacrifice, on the altar. So she says the best place to take your day is to Mass and lay it on the altar. Now begins the day's work, perhaps the teaching profession. This is Stein speaking. We cannot achieve in each hour what we want, perhaps none. We must contend with our own fatigue, unforeseen interruptions, that's a big one, unforeseen interruptions, shortcomings of the children, diverse vexations, indignities, anxieties, or perhaps it is office work, give and take with disagreeable supervisors and colleagues, unfulfilled demands, unjust reproaches. And can you think of a day when your day was thrown because somebody unjustly reproached you for something? 
she talks about that inability to accept criticism. If we feel it's unjust, it's really difficult for women to get over. Human meanness, perhaps also distress of the most distinct kind. So that might be what happens in the morning. It is now the noon hour. <laughs> and there is still so much to do until evening. Should we not go immediately to it? No. Not before calm sets in, at least for a moment. Each one must know or get to know where and how she may find peace. The best way, when it is possible, is to shed all cares again for a short time before the tabernacle. And, if pressing duties prevent a quiet hour, then she must for a moment seal off herself inwardly against all other things and take refuge in the Lord. So she says there's that moment you need in the middle of the day. Best case scenario, you can step into a chapel. That does not happen for most people. I have the sublime gift of having a Eucharistic chapel outside my office, and I can step into the chapel. But she says, seal yourself off inwardly against all other things and take refuge in the Lord. He is indeed there and can give us in a single moment all we need. Thus the remainder of the day will continue, perhaps in great fatigue and laboriousness, but in peace. When night comes and retrospect shows that everything was patchwork and much one has planned has been left undone, when so many things rouse shame and regret, then take it all as it is, lay it in God's hands, and offer it up to him. In this way we will be able to rest in him, actually to rest, and to begin the new day like a new life. So that's her real advice, that in the Holy Eucharist, relying on the Holy Eucharist and in devotion to the Holy Eucharist is where we find the strength to do all that we're called to do in a day. And when we've done all this, she says, our impact as a human being is really untold. She says that Mary gives this example, and I'll conclude with this with this explanation. Everywhere she meets with a human being, such a woman, a prayerful woman like we've just explained, will find opportunity to sustain, to counsel, to help. And I just have to say, to sustain, to counsel, to help. I was sitting waiting for my flight in Minneapolis yesterday for a few hours, and there was a lady who was at the, the desk where you check in, and I was amazed. She just for hours sustained, counseled, and helped. Every single person who came to her, some needed an upgrade, someone forgot their jacket on the last flight, someone almost missed their flight, someone, didn't, someone couldn't get to opening day for hunting because they'd missed a different connection. She just stood there. She was never going to see any of them again. It wasn't her husband, it wasn't her children, and she sustained, counseled, and helped. And I thought, my goodness, this is just an amazing woman who's doing what she's good at. Everywhere the need exists for maternal sympathy and help. And thus we are able to recapitulate in the one word, motherliness, that which we have developed as the characteristic value of woman. And that flight attendant was a mother to everyone who came to her, whether they were um, old, young, whatever. Only the motherliness must be that which does not remain within the narrow circle of blood relations or personal friends. But in accordance with the model of the mother of mercy, it must have its root in the universal divine love for all who there are there be labored and burdened. Thus I can summarize, Stein concludes, that a high vocation is designated in feminine singularity. It is to bring true humanity in oneself and in others to development. 
So everyone you meet in your day, related to you or not, should be more human when they leave you for having met you. If we fulfill our mission, we do what is best for ourselves, for our immediate environment, and together with it, what is best for the entire nation and have a tremendous impact on everyone with whom we come in contact. And that's where she ends it. So thank you again for this section on women. And let's take maybe just a few questions and then take another break. Anyone have any questions? Yes. It's a great question. I'll just repeat it. It's that um, the role of a woman in the home to nurture and cultivate their child, at what point are they called to relinquish that, let's say, nurturing control and let the child go off into the world? Stein doesn't put a year on it, but she does say that the child should be and the husband, actually, should be nurtured to become living and whole when they're a whole person. In other words, a mature adult, a mature individual who uh, understands their identity, isn't getting their identity from friends. For example, if, if a child's making a decision based on peers, etc., they're not yet the whole person making the decision for themselves. Um, she talks about not being the controlling, overprotective woman who actually paralyzes development by her own overly dominating will. So she would say the balance is between not allowing a child to get to their full development because you're overly dominating, it's your will, and just because it's your will it should be done. But as long as they're coming to mature um, wholeness, where they can make a decision and you can say, I affirm that decision, not because it's my decision too, but because I'm a whole person and you're a whole person. That's where that goes. But the, but the warning signs on both sides are, one, is, is a woman too dominating because she wants her way, but on the other side is the child not yet whole, not yet able to make decisions maturely on their own. Are they being influenced by factors that are very much uh, like, like a peer pressure or that kind of thing when they're making decisions. We see a lot of, in the school that I run with my parents, we see a lot of parents make a lot of poor decisions or allow children to make decisions based on crazy criterion. And you just think, why is the child allowed to make that decision? So I say err, err on the side of helping your child to make correct decisions for as long as possible. And then if you do that, they will make good decisions when they are truly out on, out on their own. Yes? I even have married children that have good structure who are still not making good decisions. Of course, being the parent of their family and things, I cannot go in and make the decisions. But that's where prayer has to come in. Prayer and sacrifice. And tact. I think Stein would say tact. Yeah, so, so, so that you're not walked over in what you think, but you, you've tact, tactfully let your position be known and you've lived your example. And it's very painful. I think this question is very painful in families. 
influence and decisions and how they should be made and who should make them and when, when, there's, when there are disagreements. So that's, that's a good point, even with adults. Yes? Well, and, and even if the consequences of something, that's that objectivity. You know, I complained and I complained. I had a job I did not like when I went through junior high and high school, and I complained. I had every reason in the book why I should be allowed to get a different job. And I was right, right? No, I was not right. And my parents just said, that's just the way it is. It's a job. It's a good-paying job. You're going to do this till you're in college, and we're not taking you. You're not getting a different job. And that was, that was m very much like that. It was just the objective. I had to just go with the consequences. Yeah, and not removing consequences from children because they don't mature. There's a great book. It has nothing to do with Edith Stein, but it's called The Dumbest Generation. And it's a look, unfortunately, at everyone currently under 30. And we read it with our faculty. And it's asking why the phenomenon of extended adolescence is a new phenomenon with people into even their 20s and 30s, um, not wanting to finally take responsibility and settle down. And it talks about the impact of media on um, young people's particular, their worldview, where they want to associate. It says young people have more free time and more extra money than ever, but are accessing culture less and less. There are more museums than ever not going and for example, all of the social networking, that there's a very intro, inter-focus between young people, that they're focused on themselves maybe more than other people. So it's a great book. It's called The Dumbest Generation. And I can say I've been to a basilica in Rome with beautiful young people. And we are there to take pictures of the basilica and be there. And they can, they can without um, guidance, take pictures of each other outside, outside of the basilica. And you think, but you could have taken pictures of each other in Sioux Falls. We went to Rome. And so to get people to look outside of their, of their immediate sphere, there's a chapter in there called The Betrayal of the Mentors. Mentors who are supposed to be in a, the betrayal of the mentors, Father Peter. Um, people who are supposed to be in an authority relationship with young people wanting to be liked instead of, have authority and be someone that you can look up to. Um, every day, I'm not liked when I enforce the dress code in the high school, but there's more respect for someone who you know what they think and they're going to enforce it. So it's parents, um, youth ministers, all, all mentor roles, not to betray your authority. So I think it ties in with that question of how long do we have input over decisions to really know, be firm and form informed. So let's let everybody take a break. Let's take 15 minutes and meet back at 3.30 for the end.